invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 10. And I'm going to read uh, Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, all the way through chapter 11, verse 9. These 41 verses really constitute a single unit, and it is wise to take them all together. So Genesis uh, chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Holy Scripture says, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togerma. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabtika. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod, he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Arek, Akkad, Kelna, and the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kela, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kela, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtahim, Pathrusim, Kazluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Elmadad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jera, Hadorim, Uzal, Dikla, Obel, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. 
Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a, pl a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of God, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would humble ourselves under your sovereign word. You have chosen what to tell us, how to instruct us, how to direct us. So Father, I pray that you would give us insight, understanding, conviction, passion to follow the ways of the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God cares about every people group on the face of the earth. In the middle of the first century, the Apostle Paul had the opportunity to preach the gospel in the pagan city of Athens. He declared in that sermon that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. This sovereign creator God has installed his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the one and only savior of this sinful world. Every people group on this planet, every human society on the face of the earth owes allegiance to Jesus. Although many individuals refuse to bow the knee, every people group and every language group will have representatives who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The song of redemption that reverberates in, uh, around heaven's throne sounds forth praises to the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. But how did these tribes and language groups and people groups and nations come about? And why should you care? You should care 
because God has seen fit to tell you how these things came about. And if you would, if you would walk with God as Enoch did and as Noah did, then you would do well to understand what God is doing in the world. Before we start walking through chapter 10, I want to briefly explain how chapter 10 relates to Genesis 11 verses 1 to 9. The, the genealogical history of chapter 10 covers several generations. We learn about two generations of Japheth's descendants, three generations of Ham's descendants, and five generations of Shem's descendants. And from the more detailed genealogical information found in Genesis chapter 11, uh, verses 10 to 26, which tells us the precise age of some of the male descendants of Shem, we can say that the history in Genesis chapter 10 covers up to about 340 years after the flood. And sometime in the midst of that 340 years, it could have been at the 100-year mark, it could have been at the 200-year mark, sometime in the midst of that 340 years, the events of Genesis chapter 11 verses 1 through 9 took place. Ultimately, the chapter 11 passage explains how the chapter 10 passage came to fulfillment. The fact that Shem, Ham, and Japheth had offspring requires no explanation. This is what human beings do. The matter that requires explanation is how the descendants of Noah's sons were dispersed over the face of the earth, and not merely dispersed, but dispersed according to specific language groups. Genesis 10 tells us that these descendants were, in fact, dispersed by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So Genesis 10 tells us the fact that a dispersion of humanity took place. First, the, the families of Noah's sons grew into small clans, which all lived in close proximity to one another. Only after this initial clan building took place over the course of, say, 100 to 200 years, only after that did they actually disperse. As it says in Genesis 10, 18, at the end of verse 18, afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. In other words, first, the clans developed and grew, and only later were they dispersed. And Genesis 11, 1 to 9, explains the cause of the dispersion. So let's start with chapter 10. It is possible, as we're going along here, that our journey through chapter 10 will challenge some of your historical, uh, your historical attention span. So I just want to encourage you, hang in there. We're, we're not going into exhaustive detail. We're, we're, we're looking at the big picture here. If you're content with the big picture, Good. If, if looking at the big picture makes you want to drill down deeper into some of the details, go for it. Okay? So let's, uh, let's walk through this. Chapter 10 begins with a summary statement. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. What follows is a summary of how the earth was repopulated through Noah's three sons after the flood. The information in Genesis 10 is not exhaustive. The information that is provided focuses our attention on various people groups 
that would eventually fan out over the Middle East, Asia Minor, Africa, and Europe about one to, one to 200 years after the flood. 14 descendants of Japheth are identified in verses 2 to 5. These 14 descendants consist of seven sons and seven grandsons. After the judgment at Babel, Japheth's descendants would eventually move mostly to the north and to the west, populating Europe and Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They also had a presence in Media, which is in the northwest of modern-day Iran. Japheth's descendants are referred to as the coastland peoples in verse 5. Whether in Europe or in Asia Minor or in Media, Japheth's descendants stuck close to the seas, the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. Thirty descendants of Ham are identified in verses 6 to 20. These 30 descendants consist of four sons, 24 grandsons, and two great-grandsons. After the judgment at Babel, Ham's descendants would move mostly to the west and to the south, populating Arabia, northeast Africa, particularly Egypt and Libya, Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, and Palestine, the land of Canaan. Twenty-six descendants of Shem are identified in verses 21 to 31. These 26 descendants consist of five sons, five grandsons, one great-grandson, two great-great-grandsons, and 13 great-great-great-grandsons. After the judgment of Babel, some of Shem's descendants remained in the greater Mesopotamia area, Elam, Assyria, Babylon, Syria, and others headed south to Arabia. Although this is a little oversimplified, one can say that Shem's descendants were predominant in the center of the Middle East. Ham's descendants were predominant to the west and southwest in Palestine and northeastern Africa. And Japheth's descendants were predominant to the north and northwest in Europe and Asia Minor. Of course, some of the descendants that are named in Genesis chapter 10, we actually don't have a really good idea of where they ended up geographically. But for many, we do have a pretty good idea. And, and, some, and in some cases, uh, the descendants of one brother uh, ended up in close proximity to where the descendants of another brother uh, ended up and, and they were near neighbors. Now, in addition to this general picture some other things stand out in Genesis chapter 10. Remember what I said when we looked at Genesis, uh, I think it was Genesis chapter 5. When you are looking through a genealogy, look for the things that stand out. It's not just a, it's not just a, a rote uh, reciting of names. Look for the emphases and the surprises. The first thing that stands out is Nimrod, who receives focused attention in verses 8 through 12. Five sons of Cush were listed in verse 7, but Nim Nimrod isn't included. That Cush also fathered Nimrod is singled out for special emphasis in verse 8. Now it says, it says that Nimrod, in the ESV, it says he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Well, the ESV has a footnote with the alternative translation that he began to be a mighty man on the earth, which is much to be preferred because we already met mighty men back in Genesis chapter 6. Okay? 
So Nimrod wasn't the first mighty man on the earth, but he began to be a mighty man. Um, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is not necessarily a compliment, for the context suggests that the phrase before the Lord carries a negative connotation, namely that Nimrod pursued an agenda that was opposed to the Lord's agenda. After all, Nimrod was an enthusiastic and determined builder of his own kingdom. The way that Nimrod established and expanded his empire was to build cities. Verse 10 says, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Arek, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Most likely, Genesis 10.10 is connecting the unfolding of chapter 10 with the judgment at Babel in chapter 11. This would mean that Nimrod was the leading figure of rebellious humanity as it sought to pursue its misguided ambitions at the building project in Babel. When Nimrod and his co-conspirators had to leave off building the city in Genesis 11:8, then Nimrod would have proceeded to build other cities in the land of Shinar, and then eventually he expanded into Assyria. The second thing that stands out in the Genesis 10 genealogy is Shem, who receives special attention in a number of ways. The order of Noah's three sons is always given in the order of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In chapter 5, verse 32, chapter 6, verse 10, chapter 7, verse 13, chapter 9, verse 18, and chapter 10, verse 1. Nevertheless, the genealogical information about these three sons is not given in that order. Instead of the expected order of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the actual order of the genealogy is Japheth, Ham, and Shem. That is unexpected, but it helps to explain why Shem is identified as the elder brother of Japheth in Genesis 10:21. Why is Shem's genealogy, in, why is his genealogy given last? Well, almost certainly for the sake of emphasis, because Shem's gene, genealogy is going to be revisited in chapter 11, verses 10 to 26. For it is through Shem's line that the Messiah will come. So let's get Japheth out of the way, let's get Ham out of the way, and now let's focus on Shem at the end of chapter 10, and then again later on in chapter 11. Another thing that stands out regarding Shem is that he receives a preamble before his sons are identified. Verse 2 begins, the sons of Japheth. Verse 6 begins, the sons of Ham. So we would expect Shem's section to begin, the sons of Shem. But that doesn't, that doesn't happen, it's exciting, isn't it? That doesn't happen until verse 22. First, there's a preamble in verse 21. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber. That's interesting. I already mentioned the significance of Seth being the elder brother of Japheth, but it's also interesting to note that right off the bat, Shem is identified as the father of e Eber's children. In this verse, father doesn't mean immediate biological father, but instead it means ancestral patriarch. As a matter of fact, Eber is Shem's great-grandson. So verse 21 is telling us that Shem is the father, the ancestral patriarch of his great-grandson's children. Why is he telling us that? Well, some commentators suggest that the terminology 
the Hebrews, derives from the name of Eber, in which case verse 21 is telling us that Shem is the father of the Hebrews. And if you know your Old Testament, then you would understand why that is significant. And of course, Abraham himself is identified as a Hebrew. We know for sure that it is Shem's genealogical line through Eber that eventually gets us to Abraham, and which long after that eventually gets us to the Messiah. So the fact, so the fact that Shem's line is the, is the messianic line helps to explain why Shem's line is traced out to the fifth generation. Japheth's descendants were only traced out to the second generation. Ham's to the third. Now Shem's to the fifth. Arpachshad, then Shelah, then Eber, then Peleg and Joktan, and finally Joktan's sons. The line that leads to Abraham and to the Messiah runs through Peleg, and that will be picked up in Genesis chapter 11. The third thing that stands out in chapter 10 is the significance of Peleg's name, right? When Noah was born to Lamech, Lamech named him Noah for a very particular reason, and Scripture called attention to that fact. Well, the significance of Peleg's name is highlighted here. It says in verse 25, To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. The, the, the name Peleg means division. Here the phrase, the earth, is being used as shorthand for the people who inhabited the earth. This is the same idea with which chapter 11 begins. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. But the division of languages and the dividing of the earth's inhabitants took place because of the judgment at Babel. And from Genesis 10.25, we know that this division, recounted in chapter 11, that it took place in the days of Peleg. Now it's possible that Peleg was so named to memorialize the fact that the dispersion of peoples was underway when he was born. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that Peleg was named prophetically to foretell what would take place later in his lifetime. Peleg was born about 100 years after the flood. And Genesis chapter 11, verses 18 and 19 tells us that Peleg lived a total of 239 years, which means that chronologically this puts the judgment at Babel, which took place in the days of Peleg, somewhere between 100 to 339 years after the flood. Are you tracking with me? So... Noah's three sons and their families had a run of at least several decades and possibly two to three hundred years to grow their families into small clans. During this stretch of time, Noah's large extended family, Noah was still alive at this time, Noah's large extended family lived in relative proximity to each other. Only after the events in chapter 9, in chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, did these small clans spread abroad over the face of the earth. That brings us to chapter 11. As we begin chapter 11, we are given a brief description of human civilization in the post-flood world. First, the whole earth had one language and the same words. This makes sense. 
because God created mankind with built-in language, uh, the, 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 the built-in ability to communicate with God and with your fellow man. And all human beings descended from Adam and Eve, upon whom the Lord had conferred humanity's first language. And that language would have been readily passed down from one generation to the next. Having a common language is important to communication and unification, to unity and community. Mankind was made to be unified under God's sovereign, righteous, and gracious rule. Unfortunately, sinful mankind is always pursuing pseudo-unity in rebellion against God. During these early decades after the flood, humanity stuck together geographically and in some sense geopolitically, as you can see happening at Babel. Any spreading out that took place during these early decades after the flood would have been very minimal. The land of Ararat, somewhere in the greater Middle East, was ground zero after the flood. Remember, the ark settled in the mountains of Ararat. In due course, people migrated from the east, or the, the Hebrew word translated from the east could just as easily be translated toward the east or eastward. So they're moving and they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. The land of Shinar is in ancient Mesopotamia. Verses 3 and 4 give us insight into their plan, presumably under the leadership of Nimrod. Notice the obvious. They are using their common language. They are speaking to each other and they are conspiring with each other to act in unity against God. That, of course, constitute the, constitutes the abuse and misuse of language. Verses 3 and 4 say, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The mention of bricks and bitumen, or asphalt, fits the Mesopotamia context where there was plenty of that kind of raw material. The mere fact of building a settlement or city is not the problem here. It is to be expected that as human beings multiply and move about on the earth, they will build villages, towns, settlements, outposts, cities, and so on. That's not the problem. The problem, and it is a big problem, lies in their motivations and pretensions. First, the effort to build this city and tower is an act of proud defiance. Human beings are here determined to do the very thing that God, I'm sorry, they're determined to not do the very thing that God commanded them to do. What did God command them to do in chapter 9, verse 1? And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Spread out. Now in chapter 11, we learn that humanity does not want to fill the earth. Instead, they want to hunker down in one place and not be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Second, the effort to build Babel City and Babel Tower 
is aimed to exalt man, not God. The builders say to each other, let us make a name for ourselves. They don't want to search out and study God's name. They don't want to ponder God's character and display God's worth. They don't want to hallow and lift up the name of the Lord throughout the earth. Instead, they want to hallow and lift high their own name in this place. They are humanists. Man is the measure of all things. Mankind is worthy of adulation. Humanity's progressive agenda is what matters. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for us. Let us make a name for mankind. And of course, you can bet that Nimrod and the other leaders of this project were especially interested in making a name for themselves as mighty men, as king and aristocrats over this humanistic project. Third, the effort to build the city of man and this towering, this tower, it's aimed to achieve heavenly glory. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. This is a radical distortion of the true heavenly glory to which we are called. God designed the world in such a way that we would look up and be overwhelmed by his majesty. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, Psalm 19.1. God created the heavens in such a way that we would look up and be humbled, the way that David was when he said, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? that you are mindful of him and the son of man, that you care for him. Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. So, do you see what is happening in chapter 11? Mankind wants to look up at the heavens and see a man-made tower. Instead of looking up and seeing God's handiwork, mankind wants to look up and admire its own handiwork. Instead of looking up and being humbled, mankind wants to look up and feel proud that it can ascend into the heavens on the basis of its own diligent labor. Instead of trusting God, mankind wants to trust its own works and climb the steps that it has built for it to, for it to walk on. Nimrod's kingdom-building project at Babel was a project that mankind pursued in its own wisdom and strength, for its own purpose, and unto its own glory. And this means that sooner or later, that project was destined to fail. Remember the principle of Psalm 127? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Sooner or later, the pride of men and their misguided projects will come crashing down. Isaiah 2.11 says, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Next, we are told in Genesis 11 that the Lord was not pleased with man's effort to build this city and tower. And the Lord said, and the Lord, uh, let's see, verse, verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, 
and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. One commentator, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, calls attention to the irony. Quote, no matter how high man towered, God still has to come down to see it and to get a better look. In the context of verses 1 to 4, it is important to understand that the problem is not one people having one language. That's not the problem. The problem is that these one people with one language are leveraging the power of their unity and the potency of unified communication in rebellion against the Lord. Unity is a great force. Unity is a great force for good when people are united together in that which is good. Unity, when human beings are united together under the Lord, their unity is a wonderful blessing and bears much good fruit. However, unity is a great force for evil when people are united together in rebellion against God. When human beings are united in opposition to the Lord, their unity is a precursor to the spread of deception, corruption, and ruin. When the Lord says, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them, he is not saying this as someone who is intimidated by these proud men. Remember, not long ago, God blotted out all mankind, save the eight who were on the ark. There is no contest between God and men. Every man's breath is in the hand of the Lord, and the Lord can extinguish it at any time he wants. So the Lord is not intimidated by Nimrod and his henchmen. However, the truth of the matter is that the Lord often allows the sinful choices of human beings to run their course. And as the Lord considers what is happening with this city and tower project, he knows that if he lets the sinful choices of this self-exalting gang play out for the foreseeable future, then they will succeed at wreaking havoc and destruction on the earth. We have this testimony from the history of mankind that when great power is concentrated into a unified center of political leadership, great evil is perpetrated and ordinary people suffer great harm. Just consider the communists ruling the Soviet Union for 70 years in the 20th century, or the Nazis ruling Germany in the 1930s and 1940s, or the dictatorial regime in North Korea, or the one-party rule in China today. These various expressions of totalitarianism have this in common. They represented a totalizing unity of ideas, resources, and leadership in pursuit of a virulent anti-God agenda. The cruelty, the human suffering, the suppression of truth, the pretentious attempt to exercise godlike control over other people is frightening and sickening. And this is just a testimony from particular nations at particular times in history. Just imagine the entire world being unified and totalized under the Chinese Communist Party today. 
If that thought raises your blood pressure, then I suspect you have a window into the problem at Babel. On this 4th of July weekend, it is worth remembering that America's constitutional government, which limits the power of government and which separates the various powers of government to avoid their concentration in a single person or in a single branch or at a single level, and which recognizes the God-given right of the people to live and to freely and publicly exercise their religious commitments and to be unmolested in their conscience and in their political freedom and in their livelihood and property is a remarkable, that, what I just described, is a remarkable and undeserved gift from God to our forebears. Ancient Israel's God-given covenantal government and America's constitutional republic are two of the most exceptional governments in the history of mankind, which both buck the trend of totalizing wickedness in the mold of ancient Babel or modern China. And frankly, America has squandered its heritage. While the power afforded to the Supreme Court and the powers reserved to the states provides us with some resistance to the onslaught of evil, America has been fast-tracking toward the totalizing of an anti-God agenda for several decades. And at a certain point, we may have to acknowledge and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Such is the power of unity and the potency of unified communication. So if you want to undermine such unity and break the power of unified evil, then destroy the lines of communication. Without intelligible communication, there cannot be unified community. And it is in just this way that the Lord brings judgment upon the Babel building project. Come, verse 7, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. One moment, the children of man seemed destined to succeed in their self-promoting effort to build themselves a city and a tower reaching to the heavens. The next moment, they couldn't communicate with one another. All of a sudden... One clan of people could not communicate with anyone from outside their clan. Such confusion would have been shocking, mystifying, and frustrating to them. But once they realized the situation, each clan packed its bags and moved out. And they moved out to fill the earth. They should have moved out to fill the earth in obedience to the Lord's command. Instead, they moved out to fill the earth because of an act of judgment by God upon their disobedience. God's will will be done. Now, the city name Babel, this is really interesting. The city name Babel apparently means gate of God. And it makes sense 
that the builders of Babel would have called it that. But now, God brings their lofty and misguided ambition down upon their own head. Instead of being a gateway to heavenly glory, Babel became a place of confusion, broken communication, and separation. God said no to their pretensions. Thus, the name Babel gets stuck with a new meaning because the Hebrew word Babel sounds like the Hebrew word confused. God literally brought the scheme of their city building to a confusing end. And that is how we remember it, Babel. Now, one more thing before we drive this home. When God put different languages into the human population at Babel, this caused the newly formed language groups to scatter about to different parts of the earth. The confusing of human language was itself an act of God and specifically an act of judgment against people who were using language to plot and scheme their own anti-God agenda. Although we don't know how many languages God created at Babel, the number must have been much smaller than the 6,000 to 7,000 known languages on earth today. A, A plausible explanation for how all that fits together is that the event at Babel created several dozen languages. And over time, as people continued to migrate and separate, these languages morphed into the thousands of languages that are known upon earth today. Genesis 10.1 to 11.9 is a foundational part of human history. But what God had planned for it all is even more important. I titled this sermon, From Babel to the Ends of the Earth. And I wonder if that piqued anyone's interest. I titled it this way not only because it is an apt summary of Genesis 10, 1 to 11, 9, but also because it anticipates the glorious salvation that God prepared beforehand for the benefit of all people groups. Think about this. In Genesis 11, God disperses the peoples over the face of all the earth. In short order... God will call Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and will promise to give the land of Canaan to him and his descendants. In due course, the Lord brought Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, into the promised land. Once established in the land, Israel went through many ups and downs with more downs than ups as a result of their own unfaithfulness to the Lord. Israel's kingdom was divided between the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. As a demonstration of the Lord's judgment on their unfaithfulness, Israel was defeated by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., and Judah was defeated by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And to make a long story short, what ultimately happened is that the Jews were dispersed over the face of the earth. I hope you're paying attention. Some would return to their homeland, but many would not. So first, humanity in general was dispersed throughout the earth because of its unfaithfulness. And second, the Jews in particular were dispersed throughout the earth among the nations because of their unfaithfulness. God is working his plan. Third, in the fullness of time, 
the promised Messiah came forth, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Shem, the son of Adam. He lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death in our place on account of our sins, rose again as the triumphant victor over sin and death, and sat down at the right hand of the Father from whence he will come again to judge the living and the dead. In the meantime, between his ascension into heaven and his future return, the good news of this gracious salvation must be proclaimed throughout the earth so that all who trust him will be rescued from sin and adopted into God's forever family. And God's plan was that this wonderful gospel should first be proclaimed in Jerusalem. So forth, the initial and momentous proclamation of the finished work of Christ took place on the day of Pentecost, recounted in Acts chapter 2. Do you know who was there? Devout Jewish men from every nation under heaven. Acts 2.5. Which nations? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. You see, the nations had been dispersed and then the Jews were dispersed among the nations. And now representative Jews from many nations are brought back to Jerusalem to hear the good news about Jesus. Was language a barrier? No! Because God performed a miracle in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus' disciples and enabled them to proclaim the mighty works of God in the languages of all the people who had gathered there in Jerusalem. God breaks up the unity of those who oppose him. But through the gospel, he is forming a new unified family under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the undoing of Babel. The gospel alone brings clarity to our confused and divided world. Eventually, this gospel that was first proclaimed in Jerusalem went forth to Judea and to Samaria and to the end of the earth, for it is God's will that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in Christ's name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem, Luke 24 47. Thus, the message of God's judgment from Babel to the ends of the earth was actually preparation for the message of God's salvation from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. God disperses the peoples that he might regather them again under Christ. For those who remain outside of Christ, the judgment remains. But for those who repent and believe, they form a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And they are seen standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they are heard crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. That is the plan of God. Let's pray.
Father, this very unfolding of history boggles the mind. You bring judgment and yet you have a plan to bring salvation to the ends of the earth through the Lord Jesus Christ. My prayer for every person in this room, every person listening online, I pray that you would humble our pride, that we would stand in awe of your sovereign majesty and that we would humbly receive your words and your promises and your ways into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.